You see, the church in the first century at the time John has this vision is under attack. They're being persecuted by the Roman Empire. The apostles Paul and Peter have already been executed by the Roman state. Timothy has been killed in the midst of preaching God's word. John himself is in exile on the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God. And so God's church is being persecuted. They're meeting in hiding. And then God gives John this vision. And this church that cowers, this church that is afraid that they will be extinguished by the Roman Empire, these people, when they receive this vision, they not only survive, but within a few generations, the Roman Empire becomes a Christian empire. And the people who first received this vision thrived in the environment that they were in. So it's been my prayer that God would use this vision to help his church today to not only survive in the turmoil in which we live, but that we would thrive and see revival in our land. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, I'll read Revelation chapter 4. I'll pray for us and we'll dig in. Hear now God's word from Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne... There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. <laughs> what a treat that we get a glimpse into your throne room. We thank you and praise you for that. And Father, just as you use this vision to strengthen your church so that they not only survived but thrived in the first and the second and the third centuries. Father, I pray that you would do that today. 
that for this your church who meets now, that you have gathered in this place, I pray that you would use this vision of your throne room to strengthen them so that they would not only survive but thrive. And I ask that you'd be willing to do all of this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I remember when I first got eyeglasses to help me see. It was in the fall of the year, just like the season that we're in now. And on my way to get my glasses, I saw trees and stuff. I didn't think much of it. I saw the colors. But after I got my glasses and I came out of the office, all of a sudden I could see individual leaves on the trees. And things were much clearer than they were before. You see, the world came into focus in a way that I had not been able to have it come into focus. Even if you've never worn eyeglasses like mine, if you've never had contacts, maybe you've worn sunglasses before. And you know, sunglasses can help you see in the glare, in the brightness. But if you wore sunglasses all the time, it would distort your vision. It would change your vision. In the dark, it would be harder to see things. You wouldn't see the true color of things. And I'm talking to you about these eyeglasses, about this way that we see the world. Because in a sense, we all wear glasses. We all have a way that we view the world. Not eyeglasses given us by an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, but the way that we see the world, the lens through which we see things that have been given to us by our family of origin, by the experiences that we have had. All of us have had our views shaped by teachers who taught us and the culture we grew up in and by relationships we've had and books we've read and movies we've seen and songs we've heard. And so we have to ask the question, is my perception of reality accurate? Is it clearer like my eyeglasses that fall? Or is it distorted in some way like the sunglasses inside? Today I want to invite you to put on your Revelation chapter 4 glasses and allow this vision of heaven to sharpen your view of reality here on earth. You see, Revelation gives us a new perspective, and it is a perspective from the throne of God. You see it there in verse 2, right? Where John says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven. The throne is mentioned 12 times in the next nine verses. It's the most dominant image in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned explicitly 47 times. It's referred to in passing another 77 times. And there's hardly a chapter in Revelation that goes by without mentioning the throne of God. Behold, look, see, there is a throne in heaven. This is what Jesus wants us to see. Okay, thanks Jesus, there's a throne in heaven. Thanks. How does that help us this week? How does this change things on my Monday morning or as I see family later in the week? Well, I'll tell you. It means that there is a control center in the universe. There is a supreme headquarters. 
There is a seat of authority and power in the universe. And that's important to know because from our perspective, we might conclude otherwise. From our perspective, we see viruses that can make people sick. We see viruses that can make people afraid, that can disrupt our life. We see marches in our streets. We see lots of ugliness and name-calling, lots of mistrust, lots of turmoil in our nation, turmoil in our cities, turmoils in our families, in our churches. It results in turmoil in our own hearts. And so from our perspective, we could conclude that there is no central command. But when we view things from the perspective of Revelation chapter 4, we see that there is a throne in heaven. And seeing this throne in heaven helps us to see reality much more clearly here on earth. And so I want to take a few minutes with you this afternoon to notice six things about the throne in heaven. Oh no, six. Usually a sermon's three points. And so if this, is, this is like two sermons. Listen, I've already preached this one once today, all right? We'll be out in time for supper. Don't worry about that. But there are six things that I see here in the text about the throne. For my note takers, basically these will be on the screen for you, but we're going to look at what's on the throne. We're going to look at what's above the throne, what's around the throne, what comes from the throne, what's before the throne, and what's around or on each side of the throne. So we'll look at those things together. First and most important, what or who is on the throne? You see it there in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. You may think, well, that's not a big deal, but it is. It's important to point out that the throne of the universe is occupied. The throne of the universe is not up for grabs. You see, from our perspective, we may conclude that no one's at the wheel, that no one is in control, or worse. From our perspective, we may conclude that there's been a coup and the powers of evil and chaos have taken over the controls of the universe. But Revelation chapter 4 tells us that is not the case. So who is it that's on the throne? Who is it that we see there? We'll keep going. Look at verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So what's that? These are jewels. It shows us that the one on the throne has great beauty. He is lovely. Specifically, these jewels would have great radiance. They would be luminous. That means they're bright and shiny. They're beautiful. There's great light here. The jewels would also be associated with majesty. Not many people had jewels besides kings or those who were really rich or who had great power. So again, we're to think this is someone who has great riches, great resources, great power. But, you know, just because this one on the throne is beautiful does not mean that the one on the throne is good, right? I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that tells us Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So what else can we learn about this one on the throne? Well, if you look down in verse 8, the words that we've said in the call to worship that we sang in the first song, 
We see that in heaven these creatures that we'll talk about in a moment, that day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The first thing they say and repeat three times for emphasis is that this one on the throne is holy. It means that he's separate from his creation. It means he's untainted by evil and chaos, that he's absolutely pure. That's good news. That tells us that the one on the throne is good. He's absolutely pure. And he's referred to here as the Lord God Almighty. The first century church was being persecuted for their refusal to say that Caesar was Lord. They wouldn't say that Caesar was the absolute power, that he had absolute sovereignty. And they're being told, this is the one who is the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. God, the supreme being, the one who inhabits the heavens, the ones who made all things. And that he's almighty. It means he has all might. He has all power. He has all strength. And he was and is and is to come. It's repeated several times. Verse 9 says he's the one who lives forever and ever. Verse 10 again says he lives forever and it keeps emphasizing that point. Why? So let us know that he always has been. He's not seeing anything new. It means that he's here with us in this moment. He always will be. He'll be with you on Monday morning. He'll be with you later this week as you see family. He will be with you all the days of your life. He lives forever and ever, and he will be here at the end of all things. That is so important to know. Because many people today are worried we're worried about an avi- a virus and the effects it has on our country. We're worried about our political leaders. Well, I have good news for you this morning. God is not going anywhere. He does not get sick. He does not die. He does not shut down. He continues to live and move and have his being. He's not up for election And there's no transition of power for us to work through. So as the people of God, we don't have to be afraid. Oh, what a comfort this would have been to the original audience. Think about those folks who were worried that Rome would overwhelm them and extinguish them. And their greatest hope might have been that in history books it would be written as a footnote to the history of Rome that there was a group of people who followed Jesus the Christ and claimed that he was resurrected from the dead. They were hoping just to survive. But then they received this vision of the throne in heaven and they learned this lesson of Revelation 4. They learned by putting on their Revelation 4 glasses that from the perspective of Revelation 4 that seemingly powerful People did not control their future. It's the same lesson we have. And of course, that group of people probably meeting in hiding who were afraid survived when they learned this lesson, when they got this perspective. They began to thrive and it began to change the way that they lived. 
It changed the way that they treated one another and the people around them, and soon it changed the very world. I want you to know that it is true that seemingly powerful people do not control our future. They were afraid of Rome. But I want you to know that's not just true with governing authorities. But I want you to know that seemingly powerful people do not control your future in your family, in your workplace, at your school, in your homes. We see these obstacles that seem insurmountable to us. But from the perspective of the throne in heaven, God is in charge. Who is it or what is it that has power over you? What is it that you're afraid of that causes you anxiety? Listen, whatever you face, whatever you struggle with, whatever it is that is on your mind, I want you to know God is good and he has all might. And he lives forever and ever with no transition in power. And he can fix whatever it is that you face. And when I say that, I want you to know that's not, that's not just platitudes. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just something that preachers say. Look at the text. Look at what these folks in heaven say in verse 11. They say, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now think about that with me. If God created all things good simply by the power of his word, simply by speaking it into existence, and it was, then surely that means God can recreate all things good just by saying the word. He has that kind of power. In fact, if you keep reading this book, that's exactly what it says. When you get to Revelation 21 and verse 5, that's what it says. A day comes that God says, Behold, I will make all things new, and then evil and death and chaos are done away with forever. What a comfort to us to know that God can change it all in one word. Who is it or what is it that seems to hold power over you? I don't care what it is. The reality is that the devil himself owes his existence to the one on the throne. Evil is real. We'll see that affirmed later in the chapter. But evil can do its work only as long as the one on the throne allows it to work. Evil is not in control. Revelation chapter 4 gives us a perspective that allows us to see that God is good and holy and God has all might and he is eternal and that assures us that God will prevail over evil and chaos. Continuing with that theme, reinforcing it, I want you to see the second point. Look at with me what's before the throne. I'm going to take this out of order because there are two things before the throne, but while we're talking about God's sovereignty over evil and chaos, look with me at verse 6. We read there, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now why would there be this really calm sea in front of the throne? Well, you need to know that in ancient times, 
the sea was an image for chaos and evil because it was crazy. It was out of control. People didn't understand it. They couldn't control it. And so it became a symbol of chaos and evil. In the book of Revelation, the sea also represents evil and chaos. If you keep reading, when you get to Revelation chapter 13, it is the beast that rises up out of the sea. It's the source of that evil. In Revelation 21, when God makes all things new, there is no sea because there's no evil or chaos any longer. So what do we learn from this image here that the sea before the throne is as smooth as glass and as clear as crystal? What are we to take away from that? Well, if evil is symbolized by the sea and here it's smooth and it's still and it's clear, then we learn that before the throne, chaos is stilled that evil is held at bay, that chaos is subdued. We learn that chaos is not in control and it will not win. You see, when we see the world from the perspective of the throne in Revelation 4, it means for us as the people of God that there's no need to panic. Because even though from our perspective it may seem like chaos is overtaking us or that chaos is winning, this vision reminds us that no chaos is out of God's control. One day God will make all things new. And we will live in a world with no evil and no chaos. And until that day, as we live in this day... We can have confidence that when we see chaos in our lives, we can look right at it and confidently say, chaos, you will not win. My God uses chaos to accomplish his purposes. The Lord God Almighty is on his throne forever and ever, and one day God will save the word and chaos and evil will be gone. They will exist no more. And that gives us great power to endure evil and chaos in this day. There's something else before the throne that I skipped. Let's go back and get it there in verse 5. Do you see what's before the throne in verse 5? We read, Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Well, that's odd. What are these seven torches that are burning? Well, the, the text tells us that one, right? The seven torches of fire are the seven spirits of God. Okay, well, that begs the question, what are the seven spirits of God? I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. And there is. There's only one Holy Spirit of God. And I think that's the reference here referred to by the seven spirits. So why does it say there are seven? Well, seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. So this is a reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit is before the throne in all his completeness. He's completely there. He's completely available. So why would God tell us that in the text? Why would that be something that he gives to, to speak to his church? Well, there are a lot of reasons why. Let me mention one. You see, some people worry that there are deceivers in this world who fool everyone, and they're going to get away with their deception. I'm sure the original church thought that these Roman authorities could do whatever they wanted and nobody was going to do anything about it. Some folks worry that there will be no justice, that there will be no 
end to oppression, that there will be no people getting what they deserve. So the point is this. If the Holy Spirit is there at the throne, in all of his fullness, before the throne, there is no deceit. There's no lying. There's no games. There's no manipulation. Everything is open and above board. Nothing will be overlooked. You see, nothing can be hidden from God because his Holy Spirit searches our hearts and our minds and knows us completely. God will not be fooled, and God will judge correctly. For many of us, that brings great comfort to know that God will bring justice to wrongdoers. For others of us, and maybe some of the same ones, it causes great anxiety because we know that we've not done things always in a just way. We've not always been fair. And that that will be exposed before the throne of God. I suppose both are appropriate responses to the completeness of the Spirit here. And God emphasizes even more that He does judge things that happen. And I see that emphasis from the third thing, that what we see from the throne in verse 5. Look with me. What do we see from the throne in verse 5? From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. We sang about it this morning. What's the reference there? Why would this be coming from the throne? Well, the image is from Exodus 19, where God descends on Mount Sinai in smoke, accompanied by thunder and lightning in order to give the law at Mount Sinai, to give the Ten Commandments, to give the rest of the law. And so this shows us that God is the lawgiver, and as such, he has the right to judge all that is not right, all that violates his law. And the thunder and the lightning show how powerful God is. It shows that he's powerful enough to judge evil. Who or what can stand before such a powerful being as God? As you continue reading in the book of Revelation, there are these judgments coming in Revelation. There are seven seals and then seven trumpets and seven bowls, and each will show God's judgment of evil in the world. And the seventh one of each of those things is accompanied by thunder and lightning. So again, the image is associated with God's judging evil. This imagery is here in order to remind us, to give us the perspective that we are dealing with a God who is terribly awesome, a God more powerful than anything we can imagine. This imagery shows us that we must take God seriously that we best not play games with God because of his greatness. With his spirit there who searches and knows all things, and the thunder and lightning showing the power of his judgment, we may wonder, how can we ever hope to stand before a God who knows all and sees all and judges all? That's an appropriate question. I believe the text is taking us to that question because it shows us Number four, what's above the throne? Look at verse three. We read the first part, he who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelia, and then above or around the throne, your translation may say, 
was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, if we're using Scripture to interpret Scripture, and there's a rainbow above the throne, then immediately those who are familiar with the Old Testament are going to say this reminds us of what? Noah and the ark, yes, God's covenant with Noah, thank you. This rainbow reminds us of Noah, and just as in the days of Noah, God judges evil on the earth. But the rainbow reminds us of God's mercy, that even in judgment, God shows favor, that he shows grace to some, that he preserves through his judgment, just as he did in the days of Noah with Noah and his family. The rainbow reminds us, That just as God preserved Noah and his family because he availed himself of the thing that God gave to survive his judgment, so even before the throne of God, there is a way to find refuge from God's judgment by the way that he has provided. The Lord Jesus himself you may say, where is he in the text? You're gonna, we're going to see him next week in Revelation chapter 5 as we look at the lamb who has been slain from before the foundation of the world. Run to him. He is the only escape from the judgment of God. It's the reminder that we get above the throne when we see the rainbow, that even in judgment, God shows mercy and provides a way for people to avoid his judgment. Let's get to those two, those characters you've probably been wondering about. Around the throne are these 24 elders, and then around and on each side of the throne are these four living creatures. So let's get to those. You might have been wondering about them. So number five, what's around the throne? In verse four, we see it's 24 elders on 24 thrones. Look at verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these guys? I'll just jump right to the point. I don't know. I don't know what these 24 people are. The experts, the commentators are all over the place. I read somebody who says it's the 24 gods of the Babylonian pantheon. And I'm like, why would the Babylonian star gods be in heaven in God's court? That makes no sense to me. We've said that, and so we'll probably get there, and that's what it'll be, just to mock me for that shows me, right? But I don't think that's what it is. We've learned that as we read Revelation, we've got to know the history, and we've got to know our Old Testament, because those two things together usually lead us to the right answer. Even using those things, I don't have any kind of assurance If you know the history of the culture, you know that to those living in the first century, there were 24 bodyguards around the emperor. The king had 12, proconsuls had 12, but the emperor had 24. So maybe it's saying that God is a great emperor. Perhaps that's what it means. I don't know. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's like, really, the Lord God Almighty who has all might needs 24 bodyguards? I don't think so. It's not really the role they seem to play, although they do help in carrying out God's judgment, we'll see in the chapters to come. To those familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that wherever God is, that is a place of worship, and worship takes place in the temple. And if you read about the temple in 1 Chronicles 24, David divided the priests into 24 divisions, and the priests led worship. These guys are certainly involved in worship. Maybe there's some kind of priest. 
Or in 1 Chronicles 25, David organized the musicians into 24 groups and led the singing in the temple. And these guys play harps in Revelation 5 and lead some singing. So perhaps there's some kind of priest worship leaders around the throne in heaven. I said earlier that, I don't know, maybe the best I could tell, maybe there are like 24 Lee Taylors around the throne in heaven. I prefer to think that that's what it's like. Um, probably not exactly it. Other references in the Old Testament here in the book of Revelation, there are 12 tribes of Israel that are mentioned in Revelation 21. There are 12 apostles of Jesus that are also mentioned in Revelation 21. So perhaps if you put them together, 24 is the redeemed people of God from the Old Covenant and the New. I don't know. It's just pure speculation. And while we're saying we don't know, let me just go ahead and get to number six. What's around and on each side of the throne, these four living creatures. You see them in verse six. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. They're full of eyes in front and behind. There's this description of them there. What are these things? Yeah, I don't know. They're described a lot like the cherubim that Ezekiel sees in his vision of God's throne room um, because those cherubim uh, also are described as having they're being like a lion and like an ox and like a man and like an eagle in flight. But the cherubim and Ezekiel have four wings. These guys have six. Cherubim there described as having four faces each, and these only have one, so I don't know if they're cherubim or some different kind of cherubim. Maybe they're seraphim. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6 sees the Lord high and lifted up, and there are these seraphim. They have six wings, and these guys have six wings. They had one face. The song that they sing is really similar, so maybe these are seraphim, which is a kind of angel. I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows. So why are they here? What are we supposed to learn from them? Two thoughts. Number one, the 24 elders and the four creatures must be really important if they're this close to the throne of God. If they are this close and they carry out his judgments as we see as we go on, they must be really important servants of the Most High God. That's number one. Number two, I thought to myself... What if we just ask them what they were? You know, here in the book of Revelation, sometimes John will speak to one of the elders, or they'll ask him something, or he'll ask them something. And so I was thinking, what if I was there, and I just said, with the Apostle John, he's got this guy around with him, and I just said, hey, what are you? What am I looking at? I, I want to know what this is. I want to tell my folks what this is that we're seeing. I want to tell the church what it is. And I believe these creatures would probably look at us if we asked that question and say, really? You have a vision of the throne room of God and can see the one who sits on the throne and you want to know what I am? Really? I'm literally over and over again saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to, is to come constantly pointing you to him. If you're talking to an elder, they're saying, I'm repeatedly falling on my face before him, throwing my crown at his feet, singing his praises the whole time, and you want to know what I am? <laughs> I think they'd be appalled by the question. I think they'd say, it doesn't matter who I am. It matters what I'm doing with the one on the throne, that I serve him, that I praise him day and night. So I ask you with that in mind, if such noble creatures as these, 
never cease to praise the Lord God Almighty. I wonder, should we ever cease praising Him with our words and our lives and our actions? If such noble creatures as these fall on their face before Him and give them all that, he, all that they have and all that they are, should we ever cease to fall on our face before Him offering all that we have and all that we are? I think the lesson is let's not get distracted from seeing the one on the throne. Let's not let other things take our eyes off of him. Let's stay focused on him. Look what they do in verse 10. This is interesting to me. They cast their crowns before the throne. Their signs of authority and their accomplishments. Why do they do this? It's because all authority is derived from God. It all belongs to God. All authority is His, so they take all that they have and all that they are and all that they've achieved, and they throw it at His feet because they owe Him everything. He created all things and made them what they are. So in reality, when we see with Revelation 4 perspective, when we have on our Revelation 4 glasses, we see it's really all His anyway. It never was ours. Listen, I know I'm long. I'm wrapping up. I'm landing the plane. But listen to me. This perspective is so important, and here's why. Because without this Revelation 4 perspective, we are slaves to our own agendas. We are devoted to building our own kingdom. As we work in our jobs, as we work in our families, even as we work in the church, we are devoted to building our own kingdoms without this kind of perspective. And if you can help me accomplish my agenda and build my kingdom, then you can be a part of my life. But if you're not really helping that, if you're inconsistent with that, then I will push you away and keep you on the outside. We do that with God as well. If God is willing to help me in building my kingdom, then I'll allow him to have a part in my life. I'll give him money. I'll give him time if he does things to help me build my kingdom. But if God is not helping us with our agenda, if he's not a part of what we're doing, then we leave him out of our life. We marginalize him. Does that seem petty and small to you? Yes, it does if we have this Revelation 4 type of perspective. If it shapes our thinking, then we say, that's crazy. But without this perspective, then my agenda, my kingdom is all that there is. That's all I see through my glasses, and it's the biggest thing for me, and that's why I would marginalize other things. Listen, these creatures don't seem to be concerned about building their kingdom they're certainly not worried about the outcome of things in this world. Because of their faith in the one who is on the throne, they know that one day he will make all things right, and they don't have to be so worried about it. So let me ask you, do you have a revelation for perspective? Do you have those kinds of glasses that you see the world through? I'll close with a couple of diagnostic questions to help you know. Number one, how fearful are you? These folks are not afraid because they're focused on the one who is on the throne. Question two, how is your worship? Your heart about worship may be the clearest indication that you see God for who he really is. 
Do you care about coming to worship? Now, let me be clear. I'm not shaming people who aren't able to come because you're sick or you're, you're worried about a virus. That's not my, that's my, my, my point. I said, uh, the question is, do you care about coming to worship? If you're not here, do you miss it? Are you at a point that you really don't care that much? I talk to people with the, with, with, with the shutdown that we've had. And we, we've gotten lackadaisical about our work. We just say, well, yeah, I got into a project and wasn't able to make it. Really? Some people come and they are really care, and they care a lot about worship. And I would ask those people this. Are you more worried about whether we sing the songs you want to sing and do the liturgy and the order of worship the way you want it done? Are you more concerned about having a service at the time you want? Or is your biggest concern about worship that the one on the throne receives glory and honor and praise because he is worthy of it? Our heart about worship may be the clearest indication that we see God for who he really is. And when we see God for who he really is, if we just get a glimpse, then we take all that we have and all that we are and we lay it at the feet of the one on the throne. We surrender to him. Where are you today? Maybe you feel like you face chaos. My prayer has been that this vision would bring you great comfort. Maybe this vision brings you anxiety because you realize that you don't surrender everything to God. So whether you feel comfort or anxiety or perhaps like me, a little bit of both, our response should be the exact same. To fall down and worship the one who sits on the throne and to surrender everything to him. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this vision I pray that it would forever change the way that we see things in this world. That we would be a people who are more bold in this world because we see you on your throne. And I pray that we would be a people who are more humble as we approach you because we see you for who you are. Please change our perspective. Lord, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.